everyone. We're ready for our second speaker. This is Nolan Brown. Don Betuat, Nanihan Nolan Brown, Na Fort Hall, Idaho, Nakan, Na Sasoni Banik, Dis, Anishinaabe, Na Uppets, Na Uppetsi, Timothy Brown, Anishinaabe, Na Genu, Ira Brown, Anishinaabe, Na Bia Sherlin Slim, Sasoni Banik, Na Gugu, Madeline, KK Punkin, not Sasoni Van Eyde. The Language and Culture Preservation Department, Duda Eifun, the Wakeywa, the the Bui, Nanuwen, Nanuwen, Wakey. Good morning. My name is Nolan Brown. I work at the Tribes Language and Culture Preservation Department, Shoshone Bannock Tribes. Uh, I am a Shoshone Bannock Tribal member. I'm also uh, half Minnesota Chippewa tribe from uh, the Boys Fort Band of Minnesota Chippewa. Uh, my, my maternal grandmother is uh, the late Madeline K.K. Punkin uh, now, and uh, from her I am descended from Uhugan, uh, our Chief Egan of the Malheurs, and he was a leader um, in the 1850s, 1860s, and he died uh, at the end of the Bannock War in 1868. So in my presentation today, uh, I'm going to give you just a very brief uh, touch on uh, the Shoshone Bannock tribe's relationship with Yellowstone National Park, and then I'll cover some of the things that we're doing all around our original territories to, to talk about the, the history of the Shoshone Bannock tribes. This photo right here, um, this is uh, from 2017 when the Shoshone Bannock tribes um, went for our annual ceremonial uh, bison hunt at the National Wildlife Refuge um, right outside the Grand Teton National Park. And of course, um, the title of my presentation is Nimabuash Seek, and that means we are still here. So Language and Culture Preservation Department and uh, for all Idaho, you can contact me Brown at sbtribes.com. Four Hall Reservation is in southeastern Idaho. Uh, it's bordered to the north by the Blackfoot River and to the uh, west by the Snake River. And the Four Hall Business Council is the governing body. Here's our current council members, there's seven. Serve two year staggered terms. And my office, Original Territories Historic Research Office, was created by the Four Hall Business Council to pursue our various land claims that we have, um, some of which are in southwest Montana. And so I seek to, to gather, uh, evaluate, and interpret research and history of the Shoshone Bank tribes and disseminate that information to the general public and to our tribal membership. Also, um, my duties include ed educational and interpretive projects. So throughout our original territories, I've been engaged with National Park Service, um, Bureau, of, Bureau of Land Management, other federal agencies, and even non-governmental organizations to uh, tell the story of the Shoshone people. 
when I talk about our original territories, I don't have a map, and I won't provide a map uh, delineating any kind of boundaries. It's because our people traveled vast distances over many thousands of years. And just to illustrate in the historic era where our people were at the time when treaties were being um, negotiated, I have this map. I know it's very uh, difficult to see, but there are a total of 13 different, what I would say, Shoshonean treaties signed by Shoshones, Bannocks, or uh, Paiute speakers. And the earliest occurred um, along the Humboldt River in 1855, just an early treaty. And um, later, after the 1863 Bear River Massacre, there were other treaty signs, starting with the 1863 Fort Bridger Treaty, and then followed up with the Soda Springs Treaty, Box Elder Treaty, uh, Ruby Valley Treaty, and then the Shoshone Goshu Treaty. Later on, um, we have the Snake Indians Treaty in 1865 that was signed way over in Klamath Territory by um, different bands of uh, Northern Paiute that occupied that area. And um, my ancestor, Chief, Chief Egan, he fought during the, the Snake Wars in the 1860s. Some these, these wars have been turned termed some of the deadliest in, uh, in all of the Indian Wars in terms of casualties on both United States and, and um, tribal peoples. That treaty was concluded in uh, 1868 at Fort Harney. Um, Chief Egan is one of the signatories. And from that, the Malheur Reservation in Eastern Oregon was created. Also in the 18, uh, 1868, time period where the second treaty of Fort Bridger, which establishes um, the Eastern Shoshone Reservation in Wyoming and the, the Fort Hall Reservation, and the Virginia City Treaty in um, September 1868, which should have established a reservation for Chief Tindoy's people, the Agai Dikut, uh, Duku Dikut, and uh, the mixed bands which also included Bannock speakers. Unfortunately, uh, that treaty was not ratified prior to um, the United States Congress um, ending treaty making with tribes in 1871. So here's, a, here's an image, a, a scan of the actual Fort Bridger Treaty of 1868, and we have our leaders here with their X marks. Um, the Shoshones, followed by the Bannocks, um, with the leader of the Bannocks at that time being Chief Tagi. This map is based off of uh, um, what you can find in the, the volume 12 of the Smithsonian's publications on uh, Native Americans, the Great Basin. Um, we took this map, the tribes, and just expanded it a little. We just threw some more arrows on there because there wasn't enough. <laughs> just to show, to illustrate um, the areas that our, our people lived in and traveled to. So we have the Malheur Reservation here in Eastern Oregon. 
Northern Paiute speakers. The Bannock are uh, a branch of the Northern Paiute. They, they speak the same uh, language. And Shoshone is in the same uh, Numic family. Um, and together they are within the Udo Aztec and language branch. Then we have the Four Hall Reservation with the original um, boundaries and then the, uh, the Wind River Reservation. And so our people, even in historic times, were, were recorded traveling together through all these different areas. We have, we have Tindoy um, during the uh, 1858 agreements with Frederick Lander. Lander had Tindoy as a scout leading him to City of Rocks to meet with Chief Pocatello. And we have Chief Pocatello and Washakie being recorded way down here in Hannaford, Utah, after the year after the treaty. I have a photograph of that I'll share. And then also being up here in Red Lodge, um, I mean, uh, excuse me, uh, Deer Lodge, Montana, together, and then later on coming out this way. Um, one of the place names and oral histories that our people talk about is the Buffalo Heart, Guchunam uh, Bihe, which is about 40 miles northwest of Billings. That's one of the areas that our people would travel to to hunt buffalo. So again, uh, just a little close-up of the, where the treaties were signed. And here they are. Uh, that means our leaders, and here, um, on this side, we have Chief Washki, um, Chief Pocatello, and then three individuals, also leaders from um, the bands uh, that lived with Chief Pocatello. So this was, again, taken in Hennifer, Utah, in 1869, the year after the, the treaty was signed. I mentioned the Virginia City Treaty and Chief Tindoy. Here's a photograph of, of Tindoy taken sometime in the late 1890s, around there, in Dillon, Montana. So Chief Tindoy, um, he lived in southwestern Montana, the area around Virginia City, Dillon, <coughs> all the way to the Lemhi River, um, to the, the Three Forks area, and then portions of Yellowstone National Park. And in the 1868 treaty, as follow-up to that, Tindoy met again with a um, uh, federal agent, Montana governor, to lay out the boundaries of, this, uh, of a session according to that treaty. And this is the official uh, session document. It has a gold seal, it has a, it has a wax stamp, you know, it's official as it gets, but unfortunately the United States government did not honor this, this document. What the document says though is the, the boundaries that Tindoy would be seeding are laid out here. And you can see here is the uh, since disestablished Lemhi Reservation that was created um, through executive order in lieu of, of uh, a reservation selected by Tindoy. So that, that was what he got in exchange, was uh, an executive order reservation and not the one um, contemplated in the treaty. But you can see the lands that he would have ceded to the government are all 
in this area, including portions of Yellowstone National Park. And this, this is where, where, where my office comes in, uh, Original Territories Historic Research. We have been engaging with um, the federal agencies in southwest Montana so that we can um, let them know our perspectives and that we are actually pursuing administrative remedy to take back some of the surplus BLM lands or other disposable forest service lands into trust for the Shoshone-Bannock tribes. So this area, um, if, if you look on the maps um, created by the Indian Claims Commission, this map is called Indian Claims, uh, judicially established. The Shoshone people had this area that was awarded in, in our claims, but this whole area in southwest Montana was not pursued. And then they, uh, the Indian Claims Commission did not allow for the, the Boise area to be claimed as well, um, just based off of uh, more than one tribe um, being in the area, and that would be the Northern Paiute. And then we had visitors like the Nez Perce come to Camas Prairie for different trade fairs and things like that. But it really doesn't make sense to me. It's like the United States uh, territory is New York City, right? just because you have people from Italy coming to check out uh, the Statue of Liberty does not mean that it is not American soil. So it's kind of the same concept with, this, with these claims, how they were settled. But if you overlay, um, if you overlay the session area and the claims map, you can see in the whole blank area, it should be um, Shoshone Bannock. We have some of our place names also there on the map. So that's some of the, the treaty history. And to this day, our tribe returns to our traditional homelands to hunt, gather, um, carry out the Article 4 of the treaty, which allows for hunting in the unoccupied lands of the United States. So our tribe um, is very successful at, at uh, supporting the, the continuation of game and, and uh, habitat for anadromous fish, resident fish, uh, big game, small game, and um, plants. We have a, a very active um, fish and wildlife and uh, natural resources division within our tribes. So every year we return to Virginia City and we celebrate with the, the city of Virginia City our Virginia City Treaty Day gathering. And here's, here's a photo of our youth there at this event. Each, each year we, we have a great time interacting with, with the people of Virginia City and they have dedicated land um, in the middle of the city that uh, is named Tindoy Park. And we have an interpretive sign there, but we're looking to expand in the future to create um, a center something to tell our history there in Virginia City. Other things that the tribes uh, have been pursuing is education of our, of our traditional knowledge. And one of the ways we devised to do that was create a, a graphic seasonal round calendar to, to illustrate in as simple way as we could uh, the seasons, the months, 
and some of the different examples of plants and animals or activities that we would be doing throughout the calendar year. I actually brought uh, our seasonal round um, pop-up display. It, I didn't set it up, but I'll probably, if I get an opportunity, I'll set it up somewhere where everybody can view it later on. So Numanbuwash, Sik, we're still here. Like I said, we as a tribe are active in, in, in our uh, treaty rights. And what our leaders actually did with securing those rights in the treaty to hunt the unoccupied lands was solidifying our way of life, solidifying ways in which us as Nua, as human beings, want to live. So we, we, see, we see that the exercise of our rights um, is a path to our continued wellness and well-being. Our department, um, at each of these events, we, we do our best to incorporate our teachings and language. So for the buffalo hunt that we had, we actually gave a presentation the night before on the bison anatomy in the Shoshone language. So the next day, our hunters, rather than using English words, they were throwing in as much Shoshone as they could remember from the, from the lesson before. <laughs> Camas Prairie was one of the areas, like I said, that should be um, part of Shoshone-Bannock lands. It was excluded, unfortunately, from our reservation lands, but we still return to that area also every year. We go there for the Camas Prairie homecoming. We celebrate with the city of Fairfield, and they're usually in conjunction with their Camas um, Lily Days. And then we do events back home in on the reservation, like this uh, flyer advertises our, our camas basigo, um, we say in, in Shoshone, our camas bake, where we gathered our people together and we showed them the ways to traditionally cook camas. Um, this was this last summer. Here's a photograph of camas prairie, and that is a traditional tool. It's a, a digging stick. In our language, we say bodo. And this is a photo of my wife and my little girl, she was three years old at the time, my little dog Hito. And they were harvesting camas that year with me. Also, you know, our youth, our, our people are salmon fishers. And so here we are, some of our youth on the Salmon River, uh, harvesting, hunting salmon the traditional way with uh, either pine or willow poles. So our historic ties to the Greater Yellowstone are, are many. Um, here's an example of our ties is uh, Beaver Dick, a trapper who lived and intermarried with our people. His wife's name was Jenny and of course uh, Jenny's Lake in the Grand Teton is named after this, this woman. This photograph was from 1872, um, taken by um, William Henry Jackson. William Henry Jackson, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy that he came through the area on the, on the Hayden expedition in 1872 and captured these moments of, of our people. So the sheep eaters I mentioned, 
Um, they are, uh, that is a band name that some of our people utilize. We had over um, 26 different band names that our elders recall. Some of them in this area, as our people traveled out here to hunt uh, bison, they would be called Guchunduka, and that means bison eaters. And we have the sheep eaters who lived and hunted sheep eaters in the more higher elevation terrain where, where their habitat was, and they were called the Dukuduka, sheep eaters. Other band names, for example, Basigoduka, camas eaters, Gamuduka, rabbit eaters, Barahuyaduka, elk eaters, those, those, that band would be around the Grand Teton area. And the list goes on and on. The Bannock people, the Bannock people, as well as the different Shoshone bands, traveled through the same area. This photograph is attributed to be taken around um, Pocatello, but I, I need to verify this, this photograph, but a lot of our elders say, no, this was taken around Yellowstone. This is the Bannock in Yellowstone. But a real um, famous trail is the Bannock Trail that goes through northern Yellowstone. And this um, photograph found in the Jackson Hole Museum is uh, supposed to be of the Bannock Trail. And now this trail uh, needs to be documented fuller by the National Park Service and the tribes. But the, the work is ongoing. The problem is um, the Bannock Trail is a large trail. Our, our oral history says it extends from as far south as um, Southern California, all the way to the Blue Mountains in Oregon, all the way across through the Camas Prairie to the other Camas Prairie uh, near Island Park, and then through Yellowstone, and then as far as uh, the Guchunam Biha that I mentioned, the Buffalo Heart in, in Billings. And another thing about the Bannock Trail is when our people traveled this trail, we didn't necessarily um, want to let make that path known. A lot of times our Bannock people would travel um, in higher elevations and in, in areas where they couldn't be seen, and they wanted to keep that trail hidden. But then, of course, um, other tribes use these areas, they traveled the same trails, later trappers and traders traveled the same paths, and I'm sure the, the modern highway system and road system through Yellowstone National Park overlays over the Hispanic Trail also. So more work needs to be done on that. Other evidence of our, of our peoples throughout the park are what um, archaeologists have been calling you know, conical timber lodges, a term that's been misapplied is wikiups, that's, that's, that's uh, a, a name from a different language, Algonquian I believe. Here in Numic speaking territories we would say Gani, which just simply means house. And you can apply different words in front of it to describe what kind of house. So this one would be a Wongo Gani, it's a, it's a pine tree house other types of Gani. This photo taken in 1910 in the Four Hall Bottoms is uh, either you call it a side Gani, which means a, a cattail house, or a buhi Gani, which means like a, a green house. This one, this one you could call a dembi Gani, 
a rock house. You can see it's, it's, it's a cave and it's utilizing um, juniper also. And then we have Sonikani, which would be a grass house. And our peoples lived in each of these different types of structures, depending on what resources there is, is what our people would use to create a home, a gani. This photo, also by uh, Jackson in 1872, was of Washakie's band of Eastern Shoshone, and it was taken at um, uh, a drainage near the South Pass. And they were actually here in this area because it's a traditional um, pine nut gathering area. And I'm not sure if it's limber pine or white bark pine, but it's one of the two that they were there camping to utilize this resource. Oh, and uh, the, the Ghani, the teepee, as, as it's, it's called by uh, Suwan peoples, in our language we would say Yungani, and that means a, a calm house. And, and that's, that's our word for teepee. Also in Fort Hall, this, this photo was taken in the, in the early 1900s, and you can see now we're using Wanagani, which means a cloth house or a tent. And my grandmother, she was born in 1934. She, she, her family lived in a tent in her early years. She was born in a moon house, a Hunagani is, is what it's called in our language, where our uh, women would give birth and during their, their menstrual cycle they would uh, isolate themselves in, in a moon house, uh, a Hunagani, until, until they were um, finished. And so, yeah, my grandmother was born in a moon house in, in, the, in the 1930s. She doesn't know when, what, what day or, or month, but they just assigned it January 1936. <laughs> they had to put something on a birth certificate. The Bannock War occurred in 1878, 10 years after um, the Fort Bridger Treaty. It was, it was, it was fought over the reservation having not enough supplies to, to sustain all of the people living there, which were Bannocks, and then Boise and Bruno Shoshone, who were, who were all moved out of their, their lands in the Boise and Bruno area to Fort Hall. And this individual is Buffalo Horn. He was the leader of, of, of the warriors in the Bannock War. The warfare started, it kind of originated in the Camas Prairie, and then it spread all the way from there to the Umatilla Reservation. Along the way, Buffalo Horn was killed. My ancestor, Uhagan, Chief Egan, took over as a war leader and continued bringing the Bannocks and the Northern Paiutes to the Umatilla Reservation to um, get an alliance. Unfortunately, the United States had already made an agreement with the Umatillas and my ancestor was double-crossed. Uh, he was killed along with 17 other warriors and the Umatilla, um, to claim their bounty, took Egan's skull and gave it to the army uh, surgeon there. And that army surgeon, you know, very disrespectfully boiled his skull to remove um, any of the flesh and sent it back east to the Army Medical Museum. 
So um, when I was 15 years old, you know, my grandmother told me some of this history, but she didn't know all these details, and I, you know, read it in a book, and that kind of sparked my passion for uh, history and learning about my roots and the, the other, the history, the, the, the real history of my people. And, um, you know, now it, it, it really hits home because I'm in a position where I'm a, uh, one of the males in the department that actually handles uh, NAGPRA issues and I've repatriated some of my ancestors' remains. So th that story, my, my personal story and the ongoing issues that the tribes has to deal with is, is really, uh, really uh, weighs on me, um, but I, I definitely love what I do. So, the Bannock Trail, this, this is a, a petroglyph that could be, you know, if, if you consider the Bannock Trail traveling as, as far as I had mentioned from California all the way to, to Montana, this would be a marker on, on that Bannock Trail that leads to Camas Prairie. The Bannocks continued even after uh, Chief Egan was killed to travel um, across the mountains in, in Idaho, central Idaho, and traveled all the way through um, Yellowstone National Park, where they were eventually stopped by General Miles. General Miles um, engaged them near the, the Clark's Fork of the Yellowstone River and captured that band. And these are prisoners of war. This photo was taken um, at Fort Washakie, or then it was, as it was known, Camp Brown. So this was some of the, the, the last times that our people would be free and actively moving through uh, Yellowstone National Park, because <coughs> as you know, Yellowstone was created in 1872, and ever since its creation, Native peoples and especially after the Nez Perce War and the Battle of Little Bighorn and the Bannock War, tourists were scared of native people, so there was a big effort to remove Indians from the park. <coughs> after the Bannock War, there was the, the Sheep Eater War, which, which removed the, the last of the sheep eaters from sheep eater territories in Idaho, around the, the Salmon Lemhi Rivers. And this is a photograph of one of the leaders, Warjack, he was uh, Bannock, and Tindoy. Again, this was taken in 1872 by William Henry Jackson. So following the Sheep Eater War from the 1870s all the way to the 1890s, our people still exercised their hunting rights and travel to Jackson Hole area and our people still those who didn't weren't removed uh, tried to live in Yellowstone National Park but people in Wyoming especially um, outfitters big big game hunting outfitters and even as far as the governor of Wyoming at that time orchestrated a conspiracy to remove um, 
Native Americans from that area once again, and then abolish or abrogate their their hunting right. So, in 1894, there were a bunch of constables elected in the Jackson Hole area that were were, were pro removal of Native peoples, and to to fulfill that end, they arrested a lot of uh, Bannock people in the area claiming that they were wasting game and, and just hunting for sport, which is outrageous. And, and the following year, in 1895, our, our tribes decided to um, engage with that in, as a test case and see if our hunting rights will stand up in the court of laws. And at first, they did the individual, um, John Racehorse Sr., Senior, um, he was a Bannock leader. He was he was the one involved in this court case. At first, our rights were upheld, but when it made it to the Supreme Court of the United States um, in 1895, the case Ward versus Racehorse was decided in favor of Wyoming, and that because the state was uh, created that. The, the rights, the treaty rights of the Shoshone-Bannock people and the Eastern Shoshone were abrogated, no longer in existence. Fortunately, you know, in the 1990s, we have um, Mille Lacs, uh, a treaty case in the Supreme Court involving the Minnesota Chippewa tribe, where Ward versus Racehorse was overturned, and then later on in 2018, we have the uh, Herrera case, versus Herrera versus Wyoming, which definitely affirmed that the Supreme Court has overturned Ward versus Racehorse. So our treaty rights have not been abrogated by by the statehood of Wyoming and continue to this day, just as our Shoshone and Bannock people have always asserted. The cavalry was brought in to. Um, exclude poachers and and monitor Yellowstone National Park and also remove Native Americans from the park. This is a photograph of the cavalry after they raided a poacher's camp and they, they uh, re retrieved all these these buffalo heads taken in 1894. <coughs> Same year that the Jackson Hole conspiracy was going on. So our history with the park continued, you know, we might have been excluded for a few years, but our people will still always come back. In 1925, we had the opening of West Yellowstone. We have our, our Bannock and Shoshone delegation that came for that, for that opening. Here's a photograph. This was 1925. And all of these individuals are identified. The Mbuashik, we're still here. 2018, we have the Blackfeet tribe and our tribe. When we submitted, when they submitted the 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 petition to rename Mount Doan, which this year was renamed First Peoples uh, Mountain. Also this year in uh, August, on National Park Founders Day, our tribe hosted an event at Yellowstone National Park at the Old Faithful Recreation Lodge where we gave presentations. We had probably about five different speakers coming from our Natural Resources Division, from our, our Language and Culture Department, and um, to educate the, the Park Service employees and then also the general public who were there at, at, at Old Faithful Geyser that day.
So here's a photograph. We had a we had a, a small um, dance exhibition. So it's all about now is about strengthening relationships with the federal government as uh, trustee caretakers of our lands. We have that vested interest in all the unoccupied lands of the United States. This photograph is myself and my older brother, uh, Derek Nelson Brown. He's an artist, and he uh, was commissioned by the National Park Service uh, Hagerman Fossil Beds to illustrate our new interpretive panels. And so this is an example of, of how we can strengthen relationships. Hagerman Fossil Beds is, is known as, as a very rich um, uh, fishery prior to prior to colonization below Shoshone Falls and um, Shoshone Falls Creek were known as huge areas for salmon, for uh, sturgeon, and other anadromous fish like Pacific lamprey. And this is a photograph of that area before the dam was built. So at Hagerman Fossil Beds, um, I was engaged in interpretive project and on my very first visit there to see the project area look at the current interpretation that was there at that time at the pinnacle of this overlook it's called the Oregon Trail overlook and you can see it's um, you can see the Snake River and there are ruts of the Oregon Trail traveling down this side the pinnacle of this had this sign on manifest destiny <laughs> So you can imagine how I felt coming up to this area, wondering, what, how are they interpreting the Native Americans right now? How are our people portrayed? And I get up there, and this is what I found, basically um, erasing our history and, and supporting this idea of Manifest Destiny. So I was, I was very happy to be working to replace that. So here's the reverse <laughs> Manifest Destiny. So now at the Snake River Overlook, um, where they, they talked about the Hagerman horse, which our, our people have oral history about the Hagerman horse and even hunting uh, bison, uh, latrophons, and mammoth. We have that oral history. And we have that oral history of, of the horse in this area. The illustration to go with the interpretation is called Summer Stories, and it is a portrayal of, of what it might have been for us native people because all human beings are curious you know we all can pick up some fossils on the ground and wonder what it was how it got there have stories surrounding it at Hagerman we have the Megantherion that was found there it's a saber-toothed cat and so that's what that's what this this illustration is about and then so now here's the current interpretation talking about our people there so it's very good. Rather than manifest destiny, we, we come back to knowing that people as human beings. You know, here we are. We're still here. In Grand Teton National Park also, we've, we've done interpretation, and we have interpretive um, dedications to go along with that. We had a, a float down the Snake River. Here's one of our, our current councilmen, just right before he embarked on his, his raft trip down the, the Snake. Here's the interpretation there at Pacific Creek, Nomiaquind, which means moving from place to place. And it talks again about the, the, the seasonal round, seasonal aspect of our, of our journeys. 
at Grand Teton National Park, after the, the signs were installed, we continued to engage with the National Park and we were able to bring our tribal youth there in the summer youth program to Pacific Creek. We talked about our seasonal rounds, we, we engaged them, we taught them more about the treaty, and we even got to get out in the field with the, the park archaeologists around Jackson Lake where we discovered a new site, two new sites actually, several points, tons of lithic scatter, and our youth um, got to name the site. They named it um, uh, Yagwitze on Sogo, Frog's Land, because when we got there, you know, we lined up to do, to do a survey, everybody so far apart, and we started walking in, and we were just chasing all kinds of little frogs. <laughs> <all the time. laughs> So that was really great. You know, we're we're, op we're opening doors for our tribal people, um, encouraging them to to pursue these different areas like archaeology or natural resources management, so that they can continue to support the tribes in in our efforts to maintain our lifestyles. Yeah, we're still here. This is us at Gray's Lake National Wildlife Refuge. Prior to our anything that we do, we usually will say a prayer. That's what's going on here before we harvest camas and sweet tobacco root there at Gray's Lake. The BLM, um, in that in the areas that's seeded at the, it's called the Indian Rocks area of critical environmental concern. Um, they approached us. We put up new interpretive signs, and um, we we talk about what we're currently doing, and we even included that picture of us at Grace Lake on how we're harvesting and promoting our wellness. And then we talk about what the petroglyphs mean to us. You know, they're invaluable. There's so many stories, so many, so much of our history tied to these things, and there's the evidence of it, and there's power in these places too. So we just, we just advise people, leave them alone, not only is it against the law, but they, they should be left alone, just, just out of respect. Other places we've done interpretive signs, BLM, East Fork, Salmon River, we did a sign dedication, our elder was there, um, gave a prayer, sang for us, we viewed the signs, we had a, a walk run going up into the wilderness there. This is the East Fork, Salmon River, um, it, it, it's near the, uh, both the Boulder White Clouds and the other uh, wilderness in the area. City of Rocks National Reserve, another place where we've engaged in interpretation. Here's um, the current, um, uh, well, she, she was the archeologist, uh, Tara Cannon, and now she's the, the assistant manager of the reserve. And my brother, viewing Register Rock, where they're in, in, in axle grease and different pigments, we have the, the, the register of the immigrants coming through City of Rocks. But it's actually, in that area, there's an there's a ancient hearth and um, very slight evidence of, of uh, red ochre um, pictographs there in the same location. So my, my brother, he did five new uh, illustrations, paintings for these interpretive signs. And this one shows what it might have been like, you know, if there was an encounter between a Shoshone or Bannock person and uh, an immigrant near the regist registry of, of the rocks. So we imagined, what was it like for a Pocatello's band seeing the, the immigrants come, come through the lands there? 
I, I did research for this interpretive sign and uncovered that um, Frederick Lander, he made agreements with people, uh, our, our people along the Lander, the Lander Trail. It was the first and only um, congressionally authorized wagon road that was paid for by the government. They made Lander a special agent to work with the tribes along the path. Lander knew that this trail coming through was damaging our, our root grounds, chasing away our animals because of the immigrants coming through there. And, and, and just not only our animals, um, but also our, our seeds and other, other plants, our roots, were, were devastated by these trails. So Lander knew this was going to happen, and he made agreements with Chief Washakie at South Pass in, in 1857, with uh, the Bannocks around Soda Springs at the same time, and then Chief Pocatello at City of Rocks. And then the following year, he delivered, he delivered goods. And uh, Albert, Albert Bierstadt, uh, the famous um, Western um, painter, he was there on, on this journey in 1858. He actually took a photograph of the wagon loads of goods that Lander purchased to deliver to, to Washakie, Pocatello, and, and the Bannock leaders. That photograph is right here. And so that's, that's now on the interpretation there, you know, to show clearly these were our territories. We cared for them we cared about the damage being done and we wanted an agreement for that right-of-way for the trespass through our lands. So that that happened. Again, strengthening relationships. Wallace Keck of, of the reserve the, delivered an address to us and, and the tribes were there for this dedication. My grandfather, I was very proud to, to bring him out and, and show him our work. Got it, thank you. Our other signs people got to look at. One thing I was really proud about is our tribal youth got to engage these signs and uh, this young man, Otate Matza, he is currently enrolled in the Chief Tagi Elementary uh, Academy. He's in the Shoshone Language Immersion Program and what he's doing right here, he's reading a sign talking about the, the permanent residents of, of City of Rocks and these plants and animals they're, they're talked about in Shoshone language. So I was, you know, it's very proud. The, the audience of our interpretive signs is not just the general public, but it's our tribal people too. You know, rather than manifest destiny, you know, they're seeing something that affirms our languages, our, our history, and their identities as well. We're working on more interpretation for places like Camas Prairie. Um, we have some other interpretation going up at the the uh, the Sawtooth National Recreation Area. This is going to be at Little Redfish Lake, talking about our sheep eaters and uh, arrowleaf balsam root and the bighorn sheep. So, lastly, in the, in the last few minutes, um, I wanted to talk about the the recent effort to rename the derogatory geographical features, the SQ name that was replaced. So there were over 650 of these throughout the United States that were designated to be removed uh, and replaced with different names by the Interior Secretary, Deb Holland. And we got the letter, you know, dear tribal leader, please assist us. Here's our timeline. We didn't have very much time. They, they, they gave us 
from February basically until March to, to come up with <coughs> replacements. And it, for some tribes it's easy because they might have had just one geographical feature, but like I mentioned, our territories are vast. So in the end, we submitted candidate proposal names for 65 of these geographical features, so about 10% of the total. And it was just, it was just um, released back in uh, middle of September that these, these candidate names were accepted. So here's our, here's our big old list. We actually proposed in both Shoshone and Bannock language, but the, uh, the Board of Geographic Names only chose Shoshone all the way down the line. They didn't pick any of the Bannock ones, which is unfortunate. But um, one I would like to point out is to the west of Yellowstone National Park, there was a peak, uh, SQ peak, and now it is Guchunduka uh, Doyavi, which means uh, Buffalo Eaters Mountain. And then there's a creek running nearby too, Guchunduka um, Naokwed, which is uh, Buffalo Eaters Creek. So, so, you know, that's that's very, very good that now instead of this derogatory name, we have our, our traditional place names taking hold. And rather than these stories about Manifest Destiny and, and whatever else, we have as uh, maybe some of you read the book by Keith Basso, Wisdom Sits in Places, talking about the Apache and, and how the, the power of place and the, the stories that are attached to them. Now we have a return to that in all these areas because now we have our traditional names and the teachings that go along with it associated with them. So, um, I had this video. I think we got one minute? Yeah. Okay. Let's see if it works. Yeah, I'm not sure we're going to get sound. Yeah. But um, the whole idea behind this video is it was created for the 150th of the Fort Bridger Treaty. Um, it's spoken all in exclusively Shoshone language. It talks about our different bands, the areas that we came from. And um, some of, I, I helped write the script. Some of the languages, the words, comes from different treaty negotiations where we have, like, for example, the Bruno Treaty. They talk about how our people hunted game, how obsidian was our tools, how we lived, how we wanted to be buried in the same manner of our ancestors in the, in the cliffs and crevices of our homelands. So um, that's, that's what this video is about. Um, sorry that the sound's not working. But sorry guys. And that's, yeah. that's time. So I, I really thank you all.